I want to make it clear that I think there's a big difference between art and activism. And I think like the conflation within our contemporary culture of the two is like actually quite disturbing. Like I reserve the right to like write a love song or like write about how I failed at love or like think that that is important. And artists are also like often popular because they don't piss anyone off. That's like what I actually want to talk about is like the systems and the specific people who are like silencing and dehumanizing people. People are like not homeless, they are housing deprived, right? Like people are deprived of housing and that's why they are living outside. They're being traumatized by police. They're being denied, like, the ability to, like, make music and food with their friends on a regular basis. Like, this is not okay. The place that art has taken in my life is to articulate the things that aren't for a pamphlet. This is Downstream From What. I am Kim Moffat. This is part two of the interview with Simone Schmidt. It strikes me that you make visible the possibly invisibilized or the invisible, not just in terms of the humanity of subjects, but also the kind of um, systems and oppressive actions that are taken, the encampments in the parks, um, how they can be so present in the street but yet so invisible in the consciousness of people. Um, Mm -hmm. It's an incredible disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people really, um, I think there has to be like so many reasons why people don't engage with their neighbors who are unhoused. So I don't want to like generalize, Mm -hmm. but one I think is, Obviously, that people are afraid of poor people. Uh, I think, like, people are afraid of people who use certain kinds of drugs. And I think that um, for all the talk of, like, mental health and supporting people with mental health, like people are, are are truly terrified. And I think like that terror comes from either knowing how close one might be to being housing deprived or being deprived of housing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and just like what it takes to keep going in the mundanity of work or working for things you don't believe in and working incessantly in order to prevent (laughs) prevent like that housing deprivation or you know on the flip side i think there is like a lot of wealth in toronto and people who don't worry about it like actually just like are not concerned and they don't they they understand that they are rich because other people Mm -hmm. are poor so i think those two dynamics are happening in a city like toronto and um i think in order to like avoid a lot of anxiety people turn away but i think also to avoid a lot of um guilt it's like easier to 
just think that, like, people living in the park aren't people. I was laughing at this tweet that I saw. There was, like, a a TikTok post from, a like, a woman who is unhoused in New York City talking about like how she has a job and she can't afford to live because minimum wage is so low. And then I I, I, w- I started laughing because I remembered like having this conversation with a CBC reporter who was like, uh, I was explaining like, why do why do people want to live in encampments? Well, like one reason is, is that they have stuff. Like we all have stuff and you want your stuff to, to be safe. And so if you go to work and you have a place to put your stuff that your friends can watch it, in, then like you're safer because you don't have to like lose your stuff all the time. And she was like, they go to work. <laughs> That's the story. They go to work. And I was just like, like, how far do you have to be from reality to understand that like so many people who are unhoused are going to work all the time? Like people are working all the time and they and they they just can't afford to to live. And so I think that class disparity is like really clear in Toronto where you have like journalists and you have politicians who like can't imagine they can't imagine making so little money i can't imagine making 15 bucks an hour you know and and so it's just like they have to disfigure they have to disfigure like regular people I don't know if I'm being clear, but I think it's like really complicated because like people talk about class lines as if it's like unhoused or housed or like the privilege but of of being housed. But it's like we also all know that so many people are just working their butts off to keep their housing. I, re- I remember like like standing... Um, like talking to a security guard who worked for Star Security at uh, at an eviction and just being like, how can you do this work? Like, like, how does it feel for you to do this work? And he was like, oh, I used to be homeless. It's me or them. And it wow. was that stark. Like, th- that was his. He was yeah. like, it's me or them. The politics of precarity is incredibly powerful. Like the intentional having a capitalist system that's based on precariousness uh, creates huge divisions and huge fears and huge anxieties. And uh, certainly that concern that people could slip in a moment and be what they most fear, right? In the report on Toronto, which is a chapter um, in uh, encampment Oh, sorry, Displacement City. Um, It seems to me, I I think you may have even said this, you're doing a corrective on the narrative of homelessness in some ways uh, through your text and through Jeff Bierk's photos. And there's a lot of false narratives floating around. And one that really struck me, which has always been a bit of an angering thing for me, is the misuse of statistics or the or the create of re, creation of re, the most reductive measures of these people's lives and then it gets picked up. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. about working against these false narratives? People are like not homeless, they are housing deprived, yeah. right? Like people are deprived of housing and that's why they are living outside. I mean, some people need to live outside and a lot of people need to live outside for 
for different reasons. They do better outside. But for the most part, uh, people don't have the option of safe, permanent housing. So I think like that as a baseline isn't obvious in the way that um, people in power talk about homelessness. People talk about like people who are chronically homeless. There's a pathologization of homelessness. We're always hearing this connection between people who are uh, addicted to drugs and people who are mentally ill and homelessness. And in fact, people are in distress because they are unhoused. And if they were simply given housing, then they might be in a lot less distress and then not have quote-unquote mental health issues. People are living under white supremacy and colonialism and are deprived of like like just basic needs. And so, yeah, people are in distress. They're being traumatized by police. They're being denied like the ability to like make music and food with their friends on a regular basis. Like this is not Okay. The way in which we see statistics deployed by the city and the way we were seeing it happen during um, the pandemic, but even before, is to like reduce the amount of people who are housing deprived. So there's like a total dishonesty about how many people are living outside. And that is in part, of course, because it's hard to measure, but also because it's like advantageous to minimize how many people are living outside. So a lot of the time we'll hear like uh, figures, we'll hear about like how much housing is going to be built in the next 10 years in the Housing Now program. Or we'll hear like um, how much affordable housing is going to be built. And so the word affordable is attached to uh, a metric that is just about 70 to 100 percent of average average market rent Uh, this is like not actually affordable and so building thousands of units of housing that are at average market rent or just below it is really not going to solve the problem of people being housing deprived right like building public housing is going to do that um and so i think like one way in which statistics are bandied about is um, like because there's like something quantifiable and like a metric that, you know, people then are like, oh, they're on this problem. They've got a strategy. But in fact, like those numbers are kind of irrelevant. They'll often talk about like how the shelters are only 98% full. So there's like 2% vacancies. So, you know, there's still people who could get in, but like this is like a metric that is so useless because there are shelters that serve different people. You might be a woman or a man or a trans person, and you might not be welcome in certain kinds of shelters. You could be a kid or a woman with a child who needs a certain kind of shelter, and that kind of shelter isn't open for you. This idea that there is always space in the shelter system is is simply untrue in the lived reality of many people. And it is advantageous to like throw out ill-configured statistics uh, to present a system that evidently is like not functioning um, as one that does. But yeah, I mean, I think what we saw a lot 
was just like really like blatant PR lies. Like um, I remember uh, the use of fire in encampments as like this like big, big danger to people's safety. And they would talk about how many fires were happening in encampments. And the idea was that encampments are very dangerous places and like people are going to die from being in encampments. So we don't want encampments and it's for their own good that we don't want the encampments. Um, And so, yeah, like fires, so many fires are happening. And then when you get down to it, the number of fires that they're citing as like happening in encampments have nothing to do with like fires that have gotten out of control. They have to do with how many times like a fire truck was called and a fire truck will show up for anything. They would show up for a barbecue if you're not allowed to have a barbecue. So in fact, if they had just like allowed people to cook outside, created like fire safety methods for people, given out like um, anything from like buckets of sand to like fire blankets as they were recommended to do in 2018 in this inquest the grant faulkner inquest which was an inquest into like this man's death in scarborough a guy who died from burning to death all of the recommendations were just like you have to provide for people so that they can manage fire and of course there's like a full refusal to do that and they leverage this perceived danger against people in encampments and then like forwarded this overarching narrative that a refusal to let people live in encampments was for their own good. Advocating for encampments to exist is like a really sorry spot to be in because there just should be permanent housing. There should be rent geared to income housing. There's enough space for that to exist. And so I think like, you know, this is like a very depressing reality at this moment in time because you can't meet people who are living outside who are being criminalized for being outside and not want to advocate for better conditions for them but ultimately you know you you end up like fighting a municipal government so that they'll lay off the most vulnerable I want to make it clear that I think there's a big difference between art and activism. And I think like the conflation within our contemporary culture of the two is like actually quite disturbing. To me, all I was saying at the beginning was that necessarily in my life, there's going to be action. There's going to be a through line of action and an ethic in my work and in my art. Activism isn't something you undertake, I don't think, because it's like right to do. You do it because it is necessary in different moments. One, two, three, two, three. The dream that we shared was splendid. How about the dream is now ended? Too far, too fair to be true. I actually think that like people are invisibilized and so like it makes sense that like the archive exists and history happens and time you know people 
at Rockwood are invisible to us in contemporary culture. Does it make sense that like everyone is ignoring their unhoused neighbor? No. There's one thing where you're like the materiality of like temporal presence means that like we shouldn't be ignoring each other. Whereas like I understand why people forget about history. At the same time, like I see that like obviously we talked about in with Joe Wallace, like people are erased. And in fact, I can feel myself being erased a lot of the time. You know, there's like a lot of reasons for different people's erasure. I don't know that I always understand the idea of like, like, you know, people talk about like humanizing people. It's like, it's more just that like some people are dehumanized and that what's more interesting to me is like who dehumanizes those people. And I think this is like something always where I'm like, oh, like I, that's like what I actually want to talk about is like the systems and the specific people who are like silencing and dehumanizing people, right? I I, I want to talk about Joe Cressy, who walked away from politics, clean slate. I want to talk about like why that guy is celebrated when as the like, chair of the board of health, like people died because of his refusal to provide for them. And I want to talk about why the NDP keeps backing people like Joe Cressy. And it. I want to talk about Mike Layton and Kristen Wong Tam and the established left in Toronto abandoning people. To me, it's not like that important that I was part of a collective effort to try to make sure that like our, our neighbors didn't mostly die. People were still died. I don't feel like proud because I don't think we won. I feel angry and I feel frustrated around the notion of like collective action being celebrated when we don't name those actors that walk away from these situations that they're responsible for totally scot-free with good political careers with good careers going in, working in not-for-profits at institutions. It's disgusting to me. <laughs> and so so I, I think, to me, like, this is, like, what I'm afraid of, like, a lot of the time when the arts and the politics get mixed up. And it is a big leap for me to say yes to this kind of podcast because I think we often conflate the two, and I think artists do a very good job of keeping everything kind of nice, kind like pseudo spiritual, pseudo like creative, and 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 artists are also like often popular because they don't piss anyone off. But like <laughs> those of us who do piss people off, those of us who like stand up to power in the political structures that we meet in our labor contexts are silenced and we don't have careers a lot of the time. And so, Ken, you're like, you're like interested in the work now and that's so nice and I feel great. But like the reality is, is that I worked in Toronto for 15 years doing the same thing in so many different forms and there's a reason why you don't hear about it. Exactly. <laughs> I have this notion that you're conscious of managing these structures of heteropatriarchy, capitalism, colonialism, all the time in your work in art. And the question was, how does that set you off base? You've already started to talk about that. You're invisibilized. Does it queer your work? Does your work perceived as being queer? Um, what does that do to your art form? Well, you know, working in music is this like, 
interesting thing because it's really, first of all, really important to not conflate music with the music business. I think there are so many practicing musicians who who work and they create work all the time and they're active and they are uh, unknown within the commercial realm. And that's just true. But the commercialization of music and what we consider to be a music career is rooted in like settler colonialism is rooted in, you know, if I look at the tradition of country music that I started writing in, that's rooted in segregation, in race records, the construction of the hillbilly versus the blues singer. And um, this is like about the construction of genre and then like song as recordable and saleable. So, so I think it's important to like recognize that we're talking effectively about colonialism and the transatlantic <laughs> slave trade when we're talking about like the the beginning of of recorded music as an industry there's something so m- incredible about the fact that music can be recorded and that magic is is like compelling like when you hold a record or you're like wow like there's there's songs on these this is what an incredible what an incredible invention um, that time can come back in this way. So, like, I, I love this aspect of it. Um, but the foundation of, like, the industry that propels the recording um, is, like, so rotten. And it shows itself in, like, every which way all the time. And so, yeah, I think, like, it's it's weird because I at once don't feel, like, entitled to be seen or like recognized and like also I don't feel the desire to be seen and recognized within like certain structures like it always makes me sad when people like act as if you can get a Juno or a Grammy and not have like truly trampled a bunch of people like it's a ultra hierarchical business and so like my experience with that is like knowing that, but then like also like getting close to it sometimes and like watching the way in which the professional establishment will protect abusers, for instance, has been like really hard for me because like you realize that like in order to do business, you're going to have to ignore that like the person making pathways for you, your booking agent, your manager, your record label are all complicit in like the abuse of other people. Whether that's like through professional channels, business channels, whether that's through like aggressive litigation or like stealing people's work, or that's through like actual like men who sexually abuse people. And so it's hard to like want to have a career. I guess that's like my honest experience. When I started working, it seemed like there were channels where I could, like, create my own work. I I was lucky to come up in, like, a print collective with, you know, Will Monroe was part of that collective. Like, Michael Como, Stefan Pilipa, Shannon Mugi. Like, these were all people who made things happen in Toronto and there was subculture. But the hyper-professionalization of the arts and of music has made it so that it's, like, there are fewer and fewer pathways 
towards like creating subculture and like thriving in subculture or continuous subculture. And this, of course, can't be disconnected from the fact that we're trying to do this within capitalism within a time where there's no space. There's no free space. You have to make money at a party you're going to throw because you have to pay rent. There's just like nothing that's disconnected from any of the ways in which I feel like pathways towards sharing work. Uh, <laughs> and that is the heteropatriarchy. That is like the capitalist structure. That is colonialism. That is settlerism. And so when I say that, and I say that as a settler, you know, I think like I have to interrogate, why do I think I have the right to like work with freedom on this land when I- I'm working on stolen land? Like who finds liberation on stolen land? It's like important to recognize that this isn't like a theoretical conflict. This is actually the logical end to my reality here, which is not to say that like I think it's good or that I know the solution to it. It is just to say that like as much as I feel like minimized and invisibilized by the heteropatriarchy, like I recognize that like my presence here is the result of like so many other people being invisibilized and having their land stolen from them. So why would I expect more for myself? Of course, none of us are free. I'm going to ask one last question. It's about Fiverr and the Atlantic School of Spontaneous Composition. And really the question I want to get at is the construction of a song or the creation of a song. It seems to me you're dealing with structure and improvisation. I I love the way you rethink time. You move outside of a three-minute song that fits Spotify so nicely, you know. Uh, Could you just talk a little bit about that collaboration and the creation of a song? Okay, so like when I started writing songs, the form was like very clear to me because I I started like in 2007 in this band called $100 and it was like country songs. And I had another project called LSWD Cup, which was punk songs. And like the distinction between the two was like really clear to me. But it was like with a country song, there's like a beginning and like a middle and an end and usually it's like verse chorus verse chorus maybe there's a bridge then there's like verse chorus and then you can arrange that in more or less interesting ways musically but um like with a country song that the the chorus happens and by the end if it's a good song then the third verse informs the chorus in a different way right like you have a new meaning even though you've repeated the chorus And so this was like a great storytelling device. This is like a great way of like dealing with the painful because it ties up, you know, like you can tell a sad story, but it like has a satisfaction of like ending. And then as like time went on and I had like bouts of like real discombobulation and confusion and like doubt, I stopped wanting that. Like I stopped being able to understand how to write that song maybe I could write a, a a little moment of a narrative but I couldn't in into that form but I couldn't write like a full story 
in that form because, like, that's not really how my life has worked. I don't feel like there's a be- like there's so many beginnings and there's so many ends and like it's just like none of them are comfortable and none of them <laughs> like feel that good and so how uh, a form can like disfigure or contain you know feels different at different times in life something that's neat about improvisational music is it's just like a lot about listening and responding and I became really compelled by improvisational music in that way. And I didn't really know a way in because I'm just like a folk musician. And um, I met Nick Dorado, who has a project called Booty, B-U-D-I. But everyone should check it out. And and Jeremy Costello, who has a project called Special Costello, and Bianca Palmer. And they were working with um, this guy called Lance who has a project called Aquaculture. And I first saw them all play at Sappy Fest in Sackville, New Brunswick um, in 2017. And I was so taken back by their energy. It was, it was like a huge band. And I remember writing to Nick after seeing him play at the AGO because he had played for this uh, performance art show called Doored that uh, Amy Lamb and John McCurley used to run. And I just remember being like floored by them. I was like, wow. So I wrote them an email and they were like, oh, you got to check your email. Like... <laughs> I wrote to you years ago, and so we were mutual fans. So we decided we were going to try to work together, and they came through town. They were playing with Beverly Glenn Copeland. And um, Bianca and Nick have this rooting in improvisational music that is important for me to name. It's like their teachers, Jerry Grinelli. He died um, two years ago in July. And his impact on my life as a result of being their teachers has been really huge. He had a listening practice, and he— um, you know, was core of this thing called the Creative Music Workshop in Halifax, Jibukchuk. And he was like, just like endowed them with all of these listening practices. And they taught those to me. When I came to them to arrange music, they actually like had no knowledge at all of like what a country song was. Country music has a traditional vernacular. So I was teaching them about the tradition and then they were lending like a new kind of way of playing the songs. Those recordings are like very arranged, but they are like resulting from like hours of me recording them like jamming. And they're truly improvisational musicians in that like trying to get them to play the same thing twice is very, very difficult. So I think that shows in the music that there's like something that is channeled that is about like presence. And that's a really stark contrast to like what I'm bringing to them, which is like a fixed song, like a song that mostly has a structure. It has a chord structure and then it has a melody. Something about playing with improvisational musicians is there's like a different melodic counterpoint for me. So I get to sing. I get to sing in a different way. Like the I can harmonize differently depending because it's just about being responsive to what's happening. I mean, I think there's something that I want to talk about, like this idea of like artists as activists and like the difference. And I think mm, there's something I just like maybe want to caution against right now because I see it happening a lot, which is like, that artists can really fall prey to being part of the strategy of other people. Which is to say that, like, because we're living in precarity and 
so many of us are forced to work all the time. And we're taught that we can't learn about policy. And we're taught that we're great communicators and that we add value to political campaigns. I think a lot of people get co-opted quite easily. And I think this also ties into branding and people wanting to use politics as branding. And what I would say is that it's really important to become literate and to try to have real experience with the policies that you end up um, supporting and articulating. The reason I bring this up is I like recently saw an initiative to bring artists into uh, advocating for housing. And it was through U of T, like a U of T initiative. And the whole initiative was about this thing called the missing middle, which is to create like more density within uh, residential neighborhoods. And I keep watching all these like ham-fisted like micro projects and micro policies that are supposed to increase the amount of housing we have. But no one is actually dealing with the fact that as long as housing is financialized, it's going to be unaffordable to people. I think about a lot of like these new initiatives as at once pragmatic, but as they refuse to push against the commodification of housing, they will remain ineffective because no one will be able to actually afford <laughs> the housing that's created. I'm really confused about why there isn't currently like a, a national housing campaign that addresses definancializing housing. Why is the bar so low when we know the only time that we had enough housing in this country was when there was like a national housing plan that created public housing for people like what what's happening right now. I grew up, as I said before, like in a time when it was like not cool to be into politics. And then I've watched it become vital for people to brand themselves through their politics with no regard to like their business practices or their processes or the way in which they relate to a larger superstructure or to the people that they hire. The place that art has taken in my life is to articulate the things that like aren't for a pamphlet, that aren't a polemic, the things that are more complicated, the truths that are like harder to sublimate really and um like I reserve the right to like write a love song or like write about how I failed at love or like think that that is important I also like love the way in which like making art making music is like also like a low stakes container, which is to say like I've worked as a PSW where if I didn't show up for my shift, someone might die or, you know, I've attended to an overdose where you could do something wrong. Like there's something just so gentle about the process of art making and meeting yourself in art making. The way that you do things like is an articulation of a politic or it is like a political reaction, but it is not necessarily like a political action. And I think the distinctions are so important to make. And then, yeah, like to just be able to go in and make art and experiment outside of like certain confines 
is is really important. And of course, we are never outside of the superstructures, but we can create containers to like experiment. And I, I think that's that's really important. Like you don't have to be strategic about your art, which is why it's so sad when people's art becomes about branding and being strategic with their brand. Like you actually don't have to have a strategy in art, but actually political action does take strategy. And I think this is what gets confused is that like artivism or like people who do like art as their like activism, like often it's about agitation or it's about like consciousness raising, but there's no like sense of and therefore like X, Y, Z will happen. It's just about like agitating. And I think like that is a great political reaction is a great thing to do. But if you want to be successful in coming about change, you do have to be strategic about what you're agitating towards. Downstream from what is a co-creation of myself, Ken Moffat, and Ben McCarthy. Art is by Autumn Fazari. Original score by Ben McCarthy. Downstream from what is created under the auspices of the Jack Layton Chair and is funded by the Dean Faculty of Arts, the Dean Faculty of Community Services at Toronto Metropolitan University.